we started this next conversation with Coach Jackson discussing the small room in the Chicago Bulls training facility from back in the early 90s where he developed strong relationships and strong bonds with other members of the coaching staff starting from the time when he was an assistant coach for the Bulls all the way through his later years with the team. Especially coach talked about coaches Johnny Bach and Tex Winter and the many hours that they would spend in this small room in this old facility shoulder to shoulder at their desks doing video work and even more importantly having conversations about the game and conversations about life. Coach shared so many examples of those conversations that they had and how especially Coach Winter and Coach Bach were students of the game. They knew the history of the game of basketball in ways that were very deep and rich. And from those many hours that they spent in that room, developed a system that came from all of them thinking together and working together. That system included specific aspects of an offense and of a defense, but even more, a broader way of going about their business together, a way of working with the players that was forged in those many hours together. I'm going to share just a couple of of other things that, that he said. One was that the ideas that they gained from those conversations, he used the term, germinated in that room. And they were long brewing ideas. They were not things that just came up randomly out of a couple conversations, but things that took place, took root and grew from the trust and the relationship and the knowledge that flowed through those conversations with, especially again with Coach Bach and Coach Winter in that small room. So as we're thinking about developing our own staffs, our own ways of working together, our own ways of leading, we shouldn't undersell the bonds and the relationships and the hours it takes with those who are closest to us, with our members of our staffs. And and we can learn a lot from what Coach said here. Um, in those rooms, sometimes Coach noted that there would be disagreement and they would talk through this is the way to go about things or maybe this is another way. And not always did they see things the same way, but that ultimately after hashing it out, they would come to the team with one voice, one with, with, a, with a degree of unity after the disagreement. So he welcomed the disagreement and they engaged in lively banter, but when they came before the team, it was with unity and with, like I said, one voice. I want to just say two other last things as we head into this conversation. The view, how we view our opponent is another thing that came from some of his many conversations with, with these coaches and with others. Coach discussed drawing from the Lakota perspective and uh, use his words when we look at how we view our opponent. He said, we're lucky to have the opponent that's creating more thoughtful play out of what we're trying to do. And we don't have to do it through resistance or overpowering or retaliation. We can do it in another way. So by taking this alternative perspective, he was able to frame competition with the toughest of opponents as as almost like a gift that allowed us to get to higher levels and more thoughtful levels of performance. It's It's a very important and interesting way to view those against whom we're competing. And then the last point that I I just urge us to pay attention to with Coach's words relates to letting go. Meaning that often when we come to these positions of being a head coach or being a leader, we have a responsibility that, that goes with that. But also there are times when we have to be willing to let go and let others' voices come to the forefront. He shared an example of one of his players coming with a great idea at halftime for a change in how they were playing. 
that made all the difference in the world. And he was secure enough in his relationships, those many hours of relationships, many hours that went into the relationships, he was secure enough and willing to let go and let other voices inform the action. So let's now move into our next conversation with Coach Jackson. In the in one of our previous conversations, you you told us some great um, stories and insights about when you were with the Bulls in this little practice space. In the practice building, it was just a s small little room where you would sit, if I recall, with Coach Winter and Coach Bach. And this is even before you're the head coach. Do you remember that room very well? What it was like? And yeah, it it was um, in a. Uh, facility that had built a tennis court um, and they decided that uh, they would lease the tennis court out to the Bulls as a practice. So, you know, tennis court, you know, it's 140 feet with the apron behind it, whatever. So there's a space and the court was about the right width. There was a gridiron post in the middle that you had to avoid if you're a coach and you're running the sideline, uh, you know, staying with the team. But um, the baseline was then an office on one side, training room on the other side, and in between the training room and the office was a video room. They're all small. It was all, you know, maybe 20 by 20, you know, if it was... Uh, 20 by 30, maybe each one uh, segment, the office, the video room, and the training room. And, uh, you know, we had uh, three desks against one wall, and when I came, there's another desk that was put in against a wall, and there are two doors in that room. You go uh, in the front door, which is close to the entrance of the court, or you go to the other door, which is almost the middle of the court, actually about the baseline, or about the... Uh, lane line but we all have monitors and we come in and guys would be working on you know their team opponent coming up you know if you had a schedule you'd see you know that there was like you know i had games you know three three down the list and then i had six you know the other coaches would be doing games one and two and i would do three and they'd do four and five and i would do six and you know you get the reports you'd have to see them you know personally and you know then we would make a video we had a video machine an actual video machine that you could use and make your own video and so we were proficient in doing that we knew how to kind of do that and it was uh you know tex winter wasn't proficient at doing it but johnny bach and i mm. knew how to run this machine there's a little gap in space and you had to have a little you know measure of time in between so you could put plays or options. So, you know, we, we had this facility and Doug was, you know, you know, going through knee operations and then go work out in the club. And um, there was a little snack bar, a little breakfast place. So we were a lot of times there, you know, from eight in the morning till 11 till practice started at 11 o'clock and then you know breaks over at 1 1 32 and we'd be there till five you know spending mm -hmm. a full day and uh, a lot of times we were alone and uh you know something would happen johnny bach uh turned his swivel chair around saying phil come over here and look at this i want to show you something so go look at it watch this this is the Milwaukee Bucks. You know, Dell Harris, he likes to he likes to confer with older coaches. He likes to check things out. Now watch this. So play with so you see what they're doing? I said, yeah, they're 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 basically running circles around Sigma to get him free. Yeah, that's called pinholsters, pinwheel offense. I said, Johnny, when did he coach? Well, he was coaching back in the 50s. A lot of people forgot about him, but Dell Harris must have figured out who he is. He must have had a little conference with him this summer because he's pulled this out. It's pretty effective. You can see all these guys are good cutters, and then Sigma's wide open in the post, and he's got no one confront him or whatever because of this pinwheel they run. So 
that was the kind of exchanges when we would have, or we'd see something else that would happen, and and it would uh, spring a conversation, and you know we got into conversation numbers of times with, um, you know, the game and what had how the game had transpired, from you know like I was saying at one time laces on the basketball mm -hmm. to a bladder that could fill a ball in. You could pump it up with a needle and, you know, you could get it to this point of which they say seven to nine pounds, right? It's always been on the basketball. Um, seven to nine pounds, we used to have a drill. We'd give the ball to a player and Tex would say, you have to know basketball all the way through. You have to know the, the actual dimensions of this game. How big is the court? How far away are you from the basket when you're shooting a free throw? Everybody says 15 feet, not 15 feet. It's 13.6 to the front of the rim. And how far is the basket away from the baseline? And how wide is the lane in the pro? And majority of these kids would not know. Yeah. They came from college and the college lane was you know 12 and the game and pros 16, but they wouldn't know the dimensions. Mm -hmm. And then he'd take the basketball and give it to them. What do you, how much do you think this basketball weighs? Well, it says seven to nine pounds on it. <laughs> you think you can shoot that basketball and weigh seven to nine pounds? No, that's, that's the pressure. That's the pressure per square inch in the, in the basket. Well, when he was first doing that, I interjected and said, um, Dex, when I was with the Knicks, we carried a needle, the trainer carried a needle, and the visiting team gets to check the balls. Mm -hmm. And we always check the balls, and we let air out of the balls until we could get two thumbs indented in the ball, because we weren't big. Willis Reed was our center, he was six foot eight, maybe he squeezed him to six, eight and a half or nine. We never had a big team. DeBusher was six, six as a power forward, Bradley six, five as a small forward. You know, our guards were 6'4", but we depended upon keeping the ball close to the rim when it was a shot. Mm -hmm. It was going to bounce all over the place. And the other thing is we didn't want to be in a hard dribbling contest. Mm -hmm. we, to dribble the ball, we wanted it to be an effort. Not that it would, but the ball basically, you hold the ball up, shoulder height, drop the ball, it should come back to your waist. Mm -hmm. So we go through all these dimensions. With the, with the players and the kids on the court and, and then give them some idea about the development of the game. How did this game develop to the point where it is at this particular time? Did you know there's a jump ball after every main basket? No. Well, jump balls were the critical element of early basketball because every basket, then you have a jump ball. So it's very important to have a tall man on your team and the jump balls used to take place at various spots on mm. the court, not at the circles and not at the jump circles. And we've almost eliminated that from the game now, that yeah. the jump ball is like a lost art. But you have to know what to do on a jump ball. So you call out directions when you get on the, you know, we give them this instructions about, you know, if you're going to tip it straight ahead, you'd say, hey, it's going to be noontime soon, isn't it? Or something like mm -hmm. that. So you're going to tip at 12 o'clock. Mm -hmm. You know, things well, like this. Subtle details. You know, all these yeah. details. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of fun hanging out with these guys because they'd seen the progress of the game all the way through from when the lane was just six feet. And it was a key. That's yeah. why it's called a key. Because when you put the circle right. on the free throw line, it actually looks like it's a key. So yeah. that's why they, they got top of the key and whatever, you know. They get into this. So the evolution of the game when they played zones, you know, um, and what happened when the jump shot came along in the, in the 40s, in the early 40s, and the uh, trips that teams would make from coast to coast so that they could play against each other, holiday festivals in Buffalo and New York City and Philadelphia, and, you know, teams like Oregon and Stanford and UCLA and USC and the Westie would come all the way east. And they'd play in Buffalo, and then they'd play in 
New York and then they play Philadelphia and they have these holidays and New Year's Eve games and festivals where there may be four or six, not eight, but usually four teams that will play in two game, two day uh, weekend type of festival. So that there's three weekends to the holiday, you'd have that. It'd be a train trip. So they went through all, all these things and you'd see that the Western teams were always scoring like 70, maybe 80 points. And you know, guys were getting 30 points. You get back East and everybody's scoring 30 and 35, maybe a winning score would be 40 to 38 or something like that. The Western teams would come in, they'd be running, yeah, running yeah. fast. The Eastern teams would play playing zone and pressuring and yeah. defense and slowing the ball down and control was really a big part of it. So, you know, we got, you know, into the, the way the game is and the similarities that are still in the game. You know, Denver and LA were fast breaking teams mm. with scores in the 110s, mm. 120s, and the Eastern teams were playing in the 90s or maybe 100 points a game. And it's still kind of prevailing, uh, that same freedom or that same run gun or whatever. And, you know, um, Johnny called me over and we were talking defense and he was like, I want to show you this zone trap. We call it 23. This zone trap here came out of Penn State. And the coach at Penn State ran this little trap zone. And New York, I mean, L.A., the Lakers, are trying to do this same thing and they're using this same trap. And so the guard pushes the ball carrier over on the sideline. The wing comes up and traps the guard and you start a rotation and step into a zone. And even though a zone was illegal to run at that time in the NBA, if you were not, if you were on the move and you weren't standing in a zone situation, the referees didn't know. That you're, if you're trapping the ball, you're okay. Then other people could rotate and, or you're trapping the center, it was okay. Then you get into rotations without being called a zone defense, but it was illegal at that time. So we 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 go through those those kind of uh, um, mechanics of the game, and um, our when I became the head coach, I made Johnny Bach the defensive coordinator, and Tex with the offensive coordinator, which wasn't happening in basketball at that time. It was happening in football, obviously, we know about that. Now I think there's teams that are still doing it uh, in the NBA. But um, Johnny uh, was loved trapping and zone defenses and the Eastern basketball he'd grown up with. He had Vince Lombardi as his freshman basketball coach at Fordham. And, uh, you know, there's a story I'll tell some other time about Lombardi was not a basketball coach, coaching basketball right, right, yeah. and, and having his presence. At, and then Fordham dropped the football and he moved on. I can't remember if he went right to the pros or went Giants. to the Giants, I think. And he, he might have gone to West Point or the Giants. Yeah, yeah. and then he, then he ended up in, uh, in Green Bay. But um, the exchange of ideas uh, was a lot of fun. And, um, Tex Winner's head coach, when he came out of college, he went pre-war, as we're talking about World War II, pre-war to Oregon State. And Slats Gill was the coach. And he's a Hall of Fame coach, Slats Gill. But we would play weekend conference games on Friday, Saturday. And Slats recruited me. I went to junior college in Los Angeles. Slats recruited me to Oregon State. But he never started the same people. You know, Friday, Saturday game, he'd start one group of guys, and Saturday he'd start a different group of guys. It wasn't hmm. big. And uh, then the war happened in uh, December of that year, and most of college sports kind of got sidelined. Hmm. And, you know, we volunteered, both Johnny and I volunteered, Tex Winter and Johnny Bach. And uh, they went off to the war. And when Tex was at the war, he 
was in the aviation and he gravitated down to Texas where they had a lot of the flight schools. And the next coach, boom, was down there as a athletic conditioning military instructor and recruited him to USC. So he ended up in USC. He was the initiator. He was one of the initiators of the what's called the sideline triangle. Now there were three other coaches that are famous coaches that are running sideline triangle. Coach that had Bill Russell at San Francisco, uh, Newman, who coached Newland, who coached uh, Cal mm. to a championship, mm. and then Texas coach at USC. It was a common offense to type triangle offense. And this coach named Gardner, who was out at Kansas State, called up Texas coach Bowen and said, did one of your guys that ran the offense for you, one of those guards, does he want to be an assistant coach? And I'd like to hire him if he would. And so, you know, he's recommended to go to Kansas State. And he said, I think I was the first assistant coach in college basketball. And I helped Gardner learn the triangle offense. And while I was doing it, I instituted a key pass situation so that the cap pass designated the movement that mm. players would have. Before it was kind of like, you know, kind of you had an option to do this and that. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like a kind of a, a regimented kind of thing that you, you taught. So we brought Gardner in one day in, in a practice facility and he was like, uh, yeah, those are really good teams. And they went to the NCAA Finals in 48. And they, I think, lost to Kentucky. Kentucky was one of those teams. Uh, Alex Rosa was, I think, one of the teams. He was caught in the scandals of 48 that year. But anyway, the story I wanted to bring out um, about that situation is that I started talking to Gardner. Well, how did how did your system evolve? How how did your program evolve to where you know you got to be a, an NCAA Final Four? He said, "Well, you know, we were not even in the conference. We were, we were Kansas A and T or agriculture and whatever else. They used to be um, a lot of state schools were agricultural schools." Yeah. And we were an agricultural school. We weren't even able to play Kansas. They only had five teams in the league. Uh, the the uh, Big Eight was Big Five, and you know I was a uh, you know given the opportunity to go coach against uh, who's the who's the Kentucky court's name? They have uh, Fog Allen. Oh. I was you know a chance to play Fog Allen's Kansas team as a you know really one of the first scheduled competitions one year. So I wanted to go down and look at the court. I went down and looked at the court. And he had put footprints, the actual footprints on the court as how he wanted wow. the players to run. And so they were running these things. They put a you know, sideline where the wings would run and you know that where the guards would yeah. run. And I looked at it and I went like, oh, we can play a box and one. We'll just play four guys on defense and we'll put the other guy down at the other end of the court. <laughs> And he said we ended up beating the Kansas team, which was a big shock to everybody yeah. and helped get us into the, you know, the big eight, which was called then. But he said that was, that was simply because, you know, it was a scouting and you saw, well, that's what the coach is going to do. Yeah. He had literally put, <laughs> put the pattern of Nice creative uh, play there by far. <laughs> so all these kind of stories just uh, germinated, you know, the love of the game, the interest in the game, the way the game evolved, you know, how it happened to turn out to be the way it is, the scandals that went down. Um, Texas teams played against Will Chamberlain, who was at Kansas. And at that time you could do, you could throw the ball from the baseline over the basket. So all Chamberlain did was stand out in front of the basket. And guys would throw the ball over the basket from the baseline. He said, so I put chicken wire on it. <laughs> so they could throw the ball. How times have changed. <laughs> and they, he was, uh, 
taking one large step from the top of the key and laying the ball up for his free throws. That's why he never became a good free throw shooter. Oh, really? You, you didn't have to stay behind the line back then? No. So he could, as long as you didn't land and the ball was out of your hand. Oh, my God. So wow. anyway, he said, so anyway, we got that rule changed, and he was on the rules committee for a number of years because he's a big influential person in basketball. But how the rules came about were one of the things that were, you're talking, you know, how you could never pronate with the ball. You had to keep your mm -hmm. hand, you could put your hand on the side of the ball and use, you know, dribbles that were cross dribbles. Those inside out dribble that we see now. No, you could pronate. Yeah. You could never put your hand below that, that pronation. And how that evolved and how it came about and the various rules that uh, governed the game at that time. So it, it was a fascinating, you know, because like I said, I never took physical education in college. I never took fundamentals of coaching or basketball 101 or whatever mm -hmm. it could be called. I was curious and uh, would listen to these guys who had been you know, watching the game evolve from the time they were kids, basically. Actually, uh, uh, Tex was a ball boy for Loyola Marymount of Los Angeles. And Pete Newell, the guy that I was mm -hmm. talking about, mm -hmm. was a player on that team, so he's like, maybe four or five years different in age. You know, he's like 15 mm -hmm. and Pete was 20 or 21. And so, you know, they, they had all grown up with this kind of basketball, overload, mm -hmm. perfect against the zone, and this kind of stuff. And Pete had been a really solid player and had gone on to be a great coach and the best ambassador of coach of basketball, uh, particularly in the Orient, in, the, in Asia. So uh, it was, it was kind of fun to have that ability. Um, Johnny Bach and I would do videos for the team. And so the videos became kind of a challenging thing that we would do. And Johnny, being a military guy, he was an ensign uh, in the Navy. And uh, he had a lot of war experience. He's on a landing party that went into Japan uh, after the war, after the, you know, Japanese surrendered, and he was in NATO a year after that before he became uh, became a backup catcher and a professional basketball player for a couple years before he started coaching in Florida. But um, get back on track here with my memory. Well, he but so he but he was bringing this whole. I mean, you you said. With Tex was bringing this whole background with the triangle, the offensive play, and then Coach Johnny's, Bach with it, he's got the East Coast defensive mentality and, and playing then, professional ball for the Providence Steamrollers. Oh, was the name <laughs> of the team, and, and uh, you know the various things that were going on in professional ball in first in '48 when it first became a league, and how how that had uh, influenced basketball and being then in New York, basically Fordham, and watching those teams in the early, the early days mm -hmm. of the NBA and the uh, effectiveness of Red Arback and building the team that he had built uh, uh, in, with the Boston Celtics and, and how that team had come about. Tex had been a roommate of two NBA, teammate of two NBA players. And both of them had had success coaching after their careers. Um, Sherman, uh, John Sherman, mm -hmm. and um, hmm. yeah, the center, center on his team, um, coached the the uh, 76ers to their championship. Oh, in six, I, uh, not Hallam, uh, uh, close. Um, Hannum. Oh. Hannum had been the center on the US, USC team that Texas played mm -hmm. in after came back after the war. And they run the triangle offense. And the center's the guy that came off the picks down by the guard and the forward because Hannum was a good shooter. Mm -hmm. So they had, both, they had both succeeded in the NBA as players, you know. Um, and uh, Texas had watch that growth of how they went into coaching and how they used their 
sideline triangle offense, oh, yeah. which was prevalent at that time. It's still going on. And um, how Chamberlain under Hannum had become the assist leader in 66-67, and the first time ever that a player outside of a guard had been mm -hmm. the, the guy that led the league in assists. And he was the apex of the triangle, and you know, he had Hal Greer, and he had some, you know, Chet Walker, Billy Cunningham, and some special players with him. And he, you know, I think maybe averaged 24 points. He kind of gave up the scoring game. Mm -hmm. Last resort, he'd take the ball in and score or whatever, but he was willing to pass the ball, and they were good. They're an exceptional team. So that, that evolution of how that system had survived in the NBA was of interest to me too. So we get, we um, we had an exchange that was very genuine, and then uh, we would talk about you know how the game has evolved and what was evolving about the game that became a point guard game instead of a two guard front and using two guards on top of the floor and how it became like a single guard that was given the role mm -hmm. of handling the ball, pushing the ball, setting up the offense. Whereas most of the teams prior to that point had multiple guys that could organize a team and play a system of basketball inside of it. Mm -hmm. So you, in that little room, you had hundreds of hours together, just time spent of learning, but also like building trust and building understanding of how each other operated from all different, a guy from North Dakota, East Coast, West Coast, figuring each other out. And that by the time you became head coach then, you talked about being, you know, willing to let go and let each person's voice be important as a leader. Yes. Well, because <clears throat> what we do, what we organize as a system, was, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. That's a basic mm -hmm. theorem. Uh, what we taught was that we had to take apart our system. We would teach our system and then take apart the various aspects and teach specifically two or three man game, depending upon what side of the court the ball was. And so how to put those things together and uh, do these were very important. So we had to teach players the skills that were necessary to operate in that kind of a game. So uh, I designated 30 minutes in a practice Drills and skills is what I call them, drills and skills. So there are drills and skills that were taught that fit into the system, everything fit into mm -hmm. the system. So um, if, if we ran a uh, exercise where players are going up and down the court with dribbling, handling the basketball, they'd be in four lanes. We had a four lane break, we had a four lane run. Our center ran the middle of the court or our bounder, as we call it. it, didn't have to be our center, but our bounder ran the middle of the court. He might come in late, he might come in early, depending upon made or missed shots. But we had a designated pattern, which we did, that all fit and conformed to how the system worked. Mm. So we had these drills and skills for 30 minutes. Then we had our defensive part of our practice for 30 minutes. And, and Bach would coordinate his drills with using our system. So if you were, you know, a facilitator in a defensive sequence and you're breaking down two and three man game, that all conformed to what our offense was. Mm -hmm. So there was a little bit of a detriment because nobody else was running our type of offense, but you're also imprinting kind of a pattern yeah. for our players so that they could understand how their shape should be on the floor and what it looked like, how it was shaped up. But also then, so there's like the technical part, how it all integrated, but then also you even told a couple of humorous stories about Coach Winter, how, you know, you, you had such trust and care for each other at a certain point that even during a game, if perhaps, you know, he would yell something out or, 
you were good with it because you, you knew where he was coming from and you knew each other so well. Yeah, the, the um, information that you get, well, decidedly, you know, assistant coaches in the, those days, back in the 90s, had specific teams. So we had, uh, when I became coach, to replace the position I held as assistant coach, I brought in one of my teammates, Jim Clemens, who had played in the 72 Laker Dick Championship on the Laker team. And it played one year with me at the end of my NBA career with the Knicks in 78. He had been traded for Walt Frazier. And so Jim and I were familiar with each other and he came from a really good program in Ohio State, which had a, a you know, coach named Taylor who was a sound, sound coach and he was fundamentally a very solid guard. So, so I had three assistant coaches and there were 20 that time maybe 28 teams so they each had nine teams and so they would be you know setting up the teams that for the that uh, next game or the game that two down the road or whatever and then when it came game time they were in charge of that that practice in prepping for the for the upcoming game so not only in the shoot around in the morning but in the prep before the mm -hmm. game uh, they were at the board, setting it up, doing their 10 to 12 minutes of reiterating what was going to go on, you know, on the floor and what were emphasis were. And, you know, we had the you know, posing boards or, you know, those type of boards that were available that uh, some of them were mobile and some of them were stationary boards that we could, uh, you know, put our information down uh, on them. And... So their voices were there, and then at the timeout, if something was going awry, and we were in a timeout, and I stepped back from the team, and the, the idea was, when you go to the bench, go to your safe spot. This is a drill we use. Go to your safe, well, what's the safe spot? Well, in your mind's eye, figure out what's the safest place you felt. Was it? Shaq, when I got to the Lakers, said, oh, it's on my grandma's, on my grandma's lap. I said, your grandma rocked you? How big were you at this time? <laughs> yeah. been she young. was a big lady too, but she could handle it. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, yeah, it was like, get your rooted self together. We, as a coaching staff, are gonna step back for 45 seconds of this, you know, 115 second timeout and go through what we have to do as a coaching staff to give you information. So if we came out and I said, well, they just got on a six, eight point run, you know, Jim, John, Tex, go back in the, the huddle after these guys have had their period to re reset themselves, talk a little bit about the defense, and we'll talk about the offense over here. And then come back and then we go back in and, and be with the players. So they. Then during the game, they had that opportunity, besides at halftime or whatever, to have a chance to step in, say, you know, you guys were warned about, you know, this and that. Mm -hmm. There's a timeout coming out. This is their after timeout play that they like to run, you know, set it up. So we weren't on top of the players all the time in the timeout. And one of the things that was always to the players that were not in the game, that your job is to go and assist your teammates and getting themselves back in the game if things have gone wrong, give them congratulations or support if things are needed in that direction. So you know, we're connected in, the, in a team fashion when we do this. And then when I come into the huddle and we're, we're gonna stand. Now, early on, I was able to squat in front of them and you know they would sit, but you know later when my knees got to a point where I couldn't do that anymore, we would stand after they sat for 40 seconds, they'd get up and come and stand in a circle and we get into that, you know, this is what I want to have happen when we go back out there now. You know, Jim and Tex and John talk to you about defense. What do you guys want to run inside our offense? Something that has to do with our offense that'll generate the energy we want. So, you know, that's where, you know, you build this kind of uh, support. And that's where, you know, assistant coaches, you know, get to manifest their voice and 
their knowledge about the game and about the team that you're playing where they have specific knowledge. So everyone's invested in the process. Um, there's like a division of labor, meaning you have offensive experts, defensive experts. But I, you also told me at one point, you know, even in that room, sometimes there would be joking, sometimes there would be talking about historical stuff, but sometimes, you know, you're arguing about something or you, you disagree about how to approach an opponent and you would hash those out. But by the time you got in front of the team, it was one voice that you had to show unity at a point. So there was allowing for disagreement and valuing it, but then at some point transitioning into now we're, we're one voice. Yeah, what, what's the best plan? You know, and sometimes the best plan, you know, one of the ideas is that you cut the head of the snake off, you know. You, you can lose a tail and still be pretty effective, but if you cut the head of the snake off, it gets pretty limited in what it can do. But, so that was kind of one of the, the aspects is how are we going to put pressure on the ball? How are we going to, you know, control this, this point guard or whatever, this, the ball movement? Um, and, you know, that begets arguments. Do you, mm. do you throw your defense in a ray to do this? Do you run a trap? Do you do a, you know, when he turns his back to, uh, you know, do, do whatever? Or are you going to let him manipulate or you know, overplay the wings or double team the post or whatever is necessary to get into limiting your opponents to what they want to get accomplished? So, um, the... Con the conflict became in the style. Um, are, are we going to stick with what we do, or are we going to mm, fail under the pressure of winning and change course and try to go somewhere else? Now that was that was one of the issues that uh, I think have been uh, a thorn in the side of our our offensive coordinator and tags was that a lot of times there was copycat situations that would go on. Well, someone ran something that's really unique and I think we could run this for George and Jordan or we could run this for somebody that could score on this. And so you would take practice time teaching something that was entirely different than your system to accommodate something that you saw that was valuable or effective effective for, for whom and for what team and against what opponent and you know there are a lot of questions that go into that. Why don't we stay with our own set of rules and you know if there's pressure we can alleviate the pressure and if there's you know double teams or traps or whatever else is going on in our favorite best player we can we're gonna have to play against or around that. So are we gonna force the action or are we gonna so our, our basic principle is go away from pressure. Don't go against pressure. All you do then is get in force versus force. So you go away from pressure. So that kind of became our mantra of, oh man, there's a lot of collision, a lot of physical activity guys are holding or whatever. Just go away from pressure. When you do that, you're gonna put the defense on edge or make a difference in the defense of what they want to do. They know that you want to get the ball or, well, do anything to get the basketball or do anything to get in position to run your offense. Just go away. We need to have something that our pressure releases. So one of the keys was developing the ability for people to not do the male thing, but just to go away from the pressure, not resist. So it's in the flow, be in the flow. So during this time now we're, we're, we're learning how to run these video machines and Johnny Bach is, you know, you know when the opponent gets defeated, he's got the you know, Vietnam symbol of a guy with the, the gun and the, the ace of spades, you know, on the <laughs> yeah. helmet yeah. or whatever, you know, someone's been vanquished or defeated. Um, I'm, I'm playing the national anthem uh, uh, at Woodstock, um, which, which is a classic. Jimmy, uh, Jimmy, yeah. Jimmy Hendrix one? Uh, Jimmy Hendrix national anthem to start the videotape, which is 
you know, one of a whole other thing. And then I begin to get this idea that, you know, we can actually, you know, use videotape to imprint ideas. And so there was something called the Way of the Peaceful Warrior, which was kind of this thing about the Native Americans and a group of people that were trying to figure out how to be at peace with this other uh, active and engaging opponent. And so the, this whole thing was about how to value your quote-unquote enemy or your opponent. And up until that time, we had been um, always going against, you know, there'd be, <laughs> there were multiple either fights or skirmishes or injuries, concussions um, that went on in, in some of these games that became heated. And we were like, nah, it's that, that you know, when you start doing that, and the referee sees the retaliation. He doesn't see the first blow, and you're trying to get even, and so you give him a, a shot back or whatever. That's what the referee sees. He doesn't see the first guy hit you in the, the rib cage. Uh, you know, he's not looking there. He's looking at the ball. He's watching what's going on out there, and uh, then he sees the uh, extra activity. So you're just playing into your opponent's hands. So we we did a whole sequence of things that kind of brought that to light. I, you know, in in this particular series, which was about a Lakota Indians and dealing with their opponent, the Crow, started valuing what their opponent could bring to their their uh, their warriorship, their their being a warrior, the counting coup. You know what counting coup is? That means you go and touch the enemy. So you gave up whatever offensive thing you were going to do. You, your spear, your arrow, or whatever else, and you came and touched the enemy. Now you could touch him with your stick, but you were putting yourself in a vulnerable position. It was kind of a little taunting, there, no mm -hmm. doubt, a little taunting, a little embarrassment, but it was really like, I'm willing to take a risk on just going up and touching you and you know, going through this process. We're in the heat of a battle, but I'm, I'm gonna you know, do this. So that's common, that's common coup, which is a you know, kind of an heroic thing. So there's that whole aspect of a warrior being a warrior, being brave, not folding to the pressure, but you know, being, being brave enough to expose yourself and take what's, you know, what, what happens behind it. So um, that concept was difficult put into action, because it's immediate, and you know, this is something that changes as the game goes on. So anyway, that was, <laughs> that was one, of the, one of the mental things that tried to get through, is that we are lucky to have an opponent that's creating more thoughtful play mm. out of what we're trying to do, and we don't have to do it through resistance or overpowering or retaliation, we can do it in another way, by pressure releases, by automatics, by counting coup, basically on our opponent. There's something about being a, like a head coach, especially with we're working with these, you know, a lot of aspiring coaches that you think that the role or the position, the title means that you have to have all the answers or you have to be the kind of commander of the group. But what you're talking about is a group that invested hundreds of hours together in discussing so many things and there's a there's a complexity or layering of your relationship together that by the time you got to a game you were you knew each other so deeply and trusted each other so deeply you were equipped to do that but that also required you as the head coach to have a degree of you use the term bench the ego but were there times when you had to to do just that as the head leader to say, to give up having to have the final say as you're, as you're making these decisions? Yeah, right. So, um, I got asked this question not long ago. Um, you went to Big Guards with a, with a second 3 P team in Chicago, in, uh, Chicago 
how did you how'd you divvy up how you're gonna play a team? Uh, I I said well, the first three P, the first group teams that won three P, we could pressure. We had guards that split time, point guards that split time, and they were to hound the point guards, and we had really fast wings in Jordan and Pippen, and we had a very active power forward in Horace Grant, who was a, a really good athlete. He wasn't a power, big heavyweight, 260, 250 pound power forward. He was a guy who weighed 235 and was 6'10", but his activity level was really high. And we had a center that protected the basket, literally. That was his job. But the next group of guys that came along, we had all 6'6 six, six and 6'7 six, wings. Jordan, Harper, Pippen. Steve Kirk came off the bench to play guard with that group and Randy Brown. But they were, you know, they came in as alternatives. Um, we had the game. Playoffs. Michael was playing point guards at the time and he was playing Tim Hardaway. And Tim Hardaway had 20 points the first half. And he was, you know, keeping them in the in the ball game. And we went in the locker room, and I was like, "What we're we gonna do about Tim Hardaway?" And Scotty Pippen said, "Let's let Harper guard him. Harper's really good at uh, guarding guys on the side of it, pushing them to their weekend. You know, not going in for you know Hardaway like to do this, you know, quick between the legs dribble to pop up. That didn't bother Harper. And he's six six and he's long arm. Let's put him on it." And uh, you know, Michael can guard uh, whoever else was, Rex Chapman or whoever else was on, on the floor. So that suggestion was perfect. He scored two points in the second half. And, you know, we, we coasted to win. It was an easy win. But that was a player stepping into that, who can do this mm -hmm. job. Mm -hmm. And someone who wanted to do the job, stepping up and doing it, uh, who was a savvy defensive player. So those, those are kind of the little things that you hope to find in a team that want, is balanced enough to feel that they can express their opinion. And you're willing to let them do it and to listen. Yeah, yeah. They, they know each other well.